Well, good morning, everybody. It's good, good to be gathered with you on the Lord's Day. And I do invite you to turn with me to your copy of God's Word as we continue in our worship. We want to give ourselves to the exposition and preaching of God's Word. And so, if you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, where we pick up in our continuous exposition of the Gospel of John. We come this morning to John, chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 3, we will focus on the first half of verse 16 this morning, but for context, let us read verses 16 through 21 together, and let us hear with attentive and reverent hearts the Word of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. If you would, bow with me and let us unite our hearts one final time as we ask God's help and blessing as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let us pray together. Father, we have sung of what a glorious comfort it is to have Christ as our most faithful friend. Father, as we come to this text this morning, we pray that You would remind us afresh of Your great love for us in giving us the gift of Your Son that You have given Your best to redeem us unworthy sinners from our sins, to save us from Your righteous condemnation and judgment. Father, as this passage makes so clear, by nature we were lovers of darkness rather than the light. And we refused on our own to come to the light for fear that our evil deeds would be exposed. But You, by Your sovereign grace, through Your Son, and by the working of Your Spirit in our hearts, brought us into the light. You changed our hearts from a heart of dead stone into a heart of living flesh so that we most willingly came to the light. So that we believed on Him who is the truth. Father, we thank You for Your great mercy and love and grace to us. We pray that this morning as we come to the preaching of Your Word, You would instruct our minds, but also, Lord, that by Your Spirit, You would empower us in our hearts and in our wills to do the things that are pleasing to You, that we would walk in a way that is upright, 
that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. We pray, Father, that we would be floored by the amazing grace that's contained in this text. Our Father, we pray and ask You this morning for those who are outside of Christ, be gracious to them. Lord, we know that they do not deserve it just as we do not and did not deserve it. But we ask for Your glory and for their eternal good that You would open their hearts and minds to see the glories of Christ. That they would not spurn Your great gift of love. But that they would by Your grace come and bow the knee and with empty hands receive the righteousness of Christ and the eternal life that is promised through all who trust Him. Father, draw near to us, we pray. Glorify Yourself in the preaching of Your Word. Exalt Your Son and the work of Your Spirit, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've continued through the Gospel of John, we come this morning and pick up in John chapter 3, verse 16, which is almost certainly and without doubt the most famous verse in all of the Bible, and for good reason. And it's a bit ironic that with all of its fame, there is uncertainty about who actually spoke the words of John 3.16. Um, you're probably familiar that in the Greek language, there were no such thing like we have in English, like quotation marks that clearly indicate when one person starts and stops speaking and another begins. All we have in the Greek text is context. And so the question is, did Jesus' conversation conclude in verse 15, where we closed last week, and verses 16-21 through 21 are now the expansion or the application of the Apostle John? Or does Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus continue all the way through verse 21? And thus, these would be the words in that case of the Lord Jesus. And honestly, I'm not this morning going to be dogmatic on that question because there are good arguments for either position. And honestly, it's not really worth getting bogged down in because it doesn't impact the significance of the truths contained in this passage. Because whether spoken by the mouth of the Lord Jesus or whether written by the pen of the Apostle John, what we have contained here is pure and concise Gospel truth. And I fully intended, as I began study at the beginning of this last week, I fully intended to open up verses 16-21. through 21. And as my word count quickly began to get away from me, I realized, okay, it's, it's just going to be verse 16. And as it even more quickly kept getting away from me, I realized, okay, we're going to have to have two, a two-part sermon on John 3.16. So we're going to focus, as I'm sure you're impressed by my lovely title, on John 3.16, Part A. And so at, at this rate, we'll be in the Gospel of John for about 42 years probably. I might shave a couple off of that for you. Let's begin verse 16. Verse 16 begins with these words, For God so loved the world. Now let us pay attention and start with that very first important word, God. This is specifically referring to God the Father as distinguished from the Son whom He sends. The Father so loved the world. This is the fountainhead from which the Gospel flows to us. 
The same Apostle John in his first epistle tells us that God is love. And if that were not the case, Christian, there would be no John 3.16 for us to revel in. The gift of Christ coming into the world to save sinners flows from the loving heart of the Father. And Christian, it's really important that we let that truth sink into our often fearful hearts. And our hearts that are often tempted to doubt the love of God. Christians too often have a skewed view of the Father toward them. And they think that the Gospel is that Christ loved us. They're convinced of that. That Christ came to live and to die and to rise in our place out of His love for us. But they think that the Gospel is that Christ came to die for us in order to make the Father love us. As though the Son's love for us is free, but the Father's love for us is contingent upon the Son coming and as it were, convincing the Father to love us. Notice John says the exact opposite. It's true, Christ came into the world because He loved us. Galatians 2.20 He who loved me and gave Himself for me. But the Father is not persuaded to love us because the Son comes into the world. Rather, John says it is the love of the Father that sends the Son into the world in the first place to redeem us. A.W. Pink said, the atonement was not the cause of God's love, but the effect of God's love. That's what John says. God so loved the world, not because He gave His Son, but that He gave His Son. Or Romans 5.8, another cross-reference says, Paul says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ demonstrates the great love that the Father has for us, showing that the Father's love was so great that He gave His best, His only begotten Son. Second key word, loved. For God so loved. Notice it's in the past tense. Okay, That's significant. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the Father loves all those after they have become Christians and trusted His Son. Okay, Though that is true, and the Father does have a peculiar love that He has for His children after they become Christians, this is saying something different. This is not just referring to the love that the Father has for us after we become Christians. This is speaking of the Father's love that precedes our even knowing Him. Indeed, notice this love precedes even the incarnation because it is this love that is the source of the sending of the Son into the world. This is a love that springs from eternity before you or I even existed and it was a love that had full knowledge of the sinful state in which we would enter this world. Now you might ask yourself, how can that be? How can a holy God love sinners? I mean, after all, we know that the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. We know that Ephesians 2 says that even us who are Christians, before we were Christians, 
We were children of wrath even as the rest of mankind. And yet, nonetheless, in a mysterious sense, God loved us from eternity past. Augustine said, in a wonderful and divine manner, even when He hated us, He loved us. And that can only be said because this is a love rooted in God who is Himself love, not a love based on any loveliness that we possessed. It's a very, very key point, Christian. It is so easy for this text and texts like it to just get utterly turned upside down in a way that exalts man. As though what John is saying is that God was just so enamored with us and impressed with us that He just couldn't help but want to give His Son in order that He might have us. That's not what John is saying. There was nothing in the creature to move God to love us when He loved us. This is free, sovereign love rooted in God's good pleasure. I'll give you some theological categories here. This is where, the, and it is important that you learn terms because I hope and trust that you'll pick up some good systematic theologies at some point, and you're going to read about theologians discussing these things. So, best to at least be introduced to them here. This is where theologians have distinguished between what we call God's love of benevolence and God's love of complacency or delight. Complacency today means a different thing than it did when it was spoken three, four hundred years ago. Um, God's love of complacency or His love of delight is the pleasure or the delight that He derives from the object of His love. Okay? So when I say I love pizza, that's my love of complacency. The attributes of what pizza is bring me delight and pleasure. Okay? This is displayed like when the Father says of His perfect Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was God the Father's love of complacency delighting in the loveliness of who His Son is. Okay, let's be clear. That is not the love that John speaks of here that God had for the world. For as I already said, there was nothing lovely in us when God loved us. This is rather speaking of God's love of benevolence or His good will toward us It is a divine commitment to do us good in order to make us lovely. Okay? The love, God's love of benevolence is a self-giving love quite apart from anything we deserve in order that He might redeem us through His Son so that He might then delight in us and we in Him. And Christian, this is what undergirds our salvation. Because apart from God first loving us in this benevolent way and giving us His Son and accomplishing everything that is necessary to give us union with Christ, apart from that first benevolent love, there would be nothing for God to delight in in us. There's a hymn I wanted to sing, but it was just too unfamiliar and I figured we'll introduce it in the coming weeks. It's called, My My Song is Love Unknown. And I know I say this too often. I honestly think it's one of the best hymns ever written. My, my song is Love Unknown. Look it up if, if you're not familiar. The opening stanza is, My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. And then it has this line, 
love to the loveless shown so that they might lovely be. That is what John is talking about in verse 16. And that line is simply an echo of what the New Testament in particular is saying all over the place. For instance, where John, again in his first epistle, will say, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or again, when he says, we love Him because He first loved us. And so, God so loved. And then the third word for our consideration, the world. God so loved the world. Now, we have to be careful not to read too much into the word world, but also not to read too little into it. Okay? For instance, saying that God loves the world, which is what John said does not mean that that love is distributed equally in the same way to everyone. So it's not a denial here of particular redemption that John will make very clear elsewhere in his Gospel. But also, okay, and here's here's a warning to the cage stagers, okay, also we ought not to ignore that John chose to use the word world. Right? We shouldn't be tempted to change the translation to say God so loved the elect. Okay? What is John saying here? I've got two, two main things and the second one I'm going to spend more time on. Two main things that John is emphasizing by saying God so loved the world. Number one, John is saying that Christ is sent into the world as the emblem of the Father's love not just to the Jew, but to the whole world. Okay? Christ is sent into the world as, a, as the one mediator, the global mediator between God and man, whether for the Jew or for the Gentile. So that's the first thing that John is saying, but there's a second thing, and this is probably, honestly, the most prominent thing John intended to communicate. Namely this, the word world in John's usage most often emphasizes the moral darkness of the human race. Okay? So the point in saying that God loved the world is not to say that God loved the dirt and the trees, though He rejoices in all His works. Rather, it is to emphasize that this love is for a rebellious, God-hating, Christ-rejecting human race. Which is quite astonishing, isn't it? You know, one of the ways that we measure love is the ill desert of the one loved. And there are none less deserving of the Father's love than sinners who have trampled again and again the glory of God underfoot and have despised the one who made them. Mark it very clearly, Christian. Those who were unworthy to be loved, those who did not even desire to be loved, them God loved. And brothers and sisters, if we're we're more shocked that God would punish sinners than we are shocked that God would love sinners, our thinking needs to be recalibrated. For those who might not be shocked at the words that God so loved this rebellious world, 
Let me remind you of the fallen angels. How many saviors did God appoint to the, for the fallen angels to be saved? Zero. The moment those holy angels, once holy, defected from righteousness and became fallen angels, their fate was sealed. No, no chance of redemption because God did not love the fallen angels in the same way that He loved chose to love the world. And the point is, in the same way, God was under no obligation to love the world. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, it could have just been immediate hell. And the judgment of God could have swallowed up our first parents forever. Fury and wrath. That, that, was, that would have been just and fair. But God promised Adam and Eve in the garden, in His grace and love, the promised seed of the woman, a Redeemer, come to save out of sheer grace Adam's helpless race. The seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent and make all things new at the cost of His own own life. That is God's love for the world. And in this sense, we should realize that in the promise and in the sending of Christ, the Father's love has been shown both to the elect and the non-elect. Okay, And we shouldn't be afraid to say that. In fact, we should glory in God's kindness as it is shown even to the reprobate. Matthew Henry said this. He said, Though many of the world of mankind perish, Yet God's giving His only begotten Son was an instance of His love to the whole world because through Him there is a general offer of life and salvation made to all. I hope you realize that, Christian. That is a demonstration of the love of God. That Christ comes into the world saying indiscriminately, whoever believes on Me will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And sinners who reject that overture of Christ's love will not be able to say on the final day, I was not saved because Christ was not offered me. But rather they will say, I was not saved because I refused to come to Christ. And so this love does extend in part to the whole world. Elect and non-elect alike. But... It is more than a mere offer for those upon whom God set His love from before the foundation of the earth. This love for them is manifest in more than merely the external offer. The external call of sinner, come to Christ. For God's chosen whom He has set His love upon, it is a love that is efficacious. And that in addition to making the offer, it also sweetly and powerfully draws them in by divine grace. This love extends to the elect in not only the offer of Christ, but as we've just looked at in John 3, the Spirit powerfully blowing upon their hearts, causing them to be born again, giving them the gift of faith so that they have union with Christ and certainly shall never be lost. Last phrase of our exposition. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now I know this has already been assumed, but think upon that, Christian. Not only do we measure love by the ill desert of the one loved, we measure love by the greatness of the price paid to love them. We understand that if it costs me $5 to love my neighbor, that is some love. But if it costs me $10,000 to love my neighbor, that is a greater love. Because it calls for a greater sacrifice. God's love is beheld in the infinite value and dignity of the person that He gave. God gave His Son. His only begotten Son. And most of you know from recent lessons that I've given in the confession that I am wholeheartedly persuaded that we should hold on to that language of only begotten Son and not just change it to mean unique or only Son. Because that term only begotten emphasizes that the One the Father gives is the One who is uniquely from the Father. We become adopted sons of God through the Gospel, but none but Christ is naturally begotten from the Father. As the Nicene Creed put it, from before all ages, God, a very God, the Father's dearest companion, true God of true God, the Beloved of all Beloveds. And John says the Father gave Him. Don't pass over that little word and what what is contained in it. Within that small word, gave, is contained all of the agony and the humiliation and the suffering that the Father gave Him up to experience in order to redeem us. In that word, He gave, is the mocking and the betrayal and the beatings and being derided and jeered and rejected. In that word gave is being forced to wear a crown of thorns, though He deserved a crown of glory. In that word gave is the crucifixion and the Son crying out to the Father, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? In that word is contained Him dying the sinner's death. That is what the Father gave Him for. The greatest person who could be given to accomplish the lowliest task for the most unworthy and ill-deserving of people. Let's move into our doctrine and application. And I'm changing it up just a little bit this morning for time's sake. One, because I went longer than I usually do in our exposition, but... Secondly, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I try to keep these sermons just a a bit briefer than they usually are. And so what I want to do is I've combined my doctrine and my application in one. Okay, So usually I'll handle doctrine and then application separately. And this morning, I've woven them together. And I have two things that I want to press upon us. The first one is, is targeted mainly towards the Christian. Okay? And the second one, mainly towards the unbeliever. Okay? Number one, 
The cross of Christ is the supreme manifestation of the love of the Father for you. Okay? The cross of Christ is the supreme manifestation of the love of the Father for you. Where does the Christian look to be convinced and assured of the love of the Father? We look not to God's works in nature. We look not to how God's hand has dealt with us in providence. We look to the One He gave in our behalf. His beloved Son. Christian, Christ is the last and final word of the Father's love toward us. And the logic, the Christian logic of fighting the fight of faith and fighting for assurance is not self-focused. First of all, it is Christ-focused. It's the logic of Romans 8, verse 32. If He, the Father, if He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him give us freely all things? Listen to the logic there that Paul's using. It's logic from the greater to the lesser. What he's saying is that if there, if there is something greater that the Father could do to show that He loves us, He would have done that. But there is no greater proof than delivering up His Son for us. And so the logic goes like this. If He did that, if He didn't even spare His own Son, how dare I let anything else in heaven or on earth cause me to doubt His love and care for me? So that even if I'm dealt the worst providences, and if the hand of providence weighs heavily on me, by way of hardship and suffering, and even if it seems that others are being spared from these things that I am being put through, I don't look at those things and think, well, God must have stopped loving me. Rather, I look at the hands and feet of Christ pierced for me, and I know without a doubt I am loved by the Father. And I say by faith, who can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Stephen Sharnock, a Puritan, said, the wounds of an Almighty God are for us a greater testimony than if we had all the other riches of heaven and on earth. And so, Christian, here's the application. Ground your assurance of God's love upon Christ and the person of Christ. Let me ask you this, Christian. I know that you, like me, doubt at times, the love of God. Let me ask you this. Do you have any doubt in your mind that God loves His one and only Son? I know that if you're here and you're a Christian, you are confident that the Father loves His Son. And that it is a love so rich and infinite and unsearchable that human thought and words stammer to even try to express it. Okay, now realize this, Christian. Being convinced of the Father's love for His own Son, realize this. In order that He could speak words of peace and solace and comfort to your doubting soul, He took His one and only begotten Son of His love and placed Him on a cross for you. 
to satisfy His own wrath that you deserved in His Son. To bury your sins deep into the flesh of the wounds of Christ. In order to destroy your death sentence through the death of His Son. And He did it in order to convince you like nothing else could convince you that there is neither nothing in life or in death or in heaven or on earth that can ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Christian, here, here's one of my burdens. It does not honor the Father or the Son to doubt the Father's love for us. We are taught in our age of relativism that it is prideful to say that we can know anything for sure and to be confident of anything. And that sort of relativism has seeped into the minds of many genuine Christians who are seeking to walk with God. And evidence of that seeping into our thinking is that when Christians are asked sometimes, well, they're asked, "Does does God love you? They often give the timid response, well... I'm not sure. I hope so. I don't want to be presumptuous. And they think that that's humility. But that's what honors God. That may sound like humility, but what that actually is when you tear away the, the cloak is that, is that is actually unbelief and subtle pride showing that I am depending on something other than what God has done to be assured of His love. Rather, true humility, God-fearing, God-believing humility, answers that question, does God love you? With a resounding yes, God absolutely, undoubtedly loves me. And in fact, I can't even understand the depth of the love that He has for me because He gave His Son for me. And that's something I can't even comprehend. And whatever else I know, I know I never want to dishonor my Father by questioning His love for me, lest I dishonor the gift of His Son that He gave for me. Christian, when a Christian has that kind of assurance and confidence, the Father is not sitting in heaven saying, oh, what a prideful and presumptuous child that one is. Or when you're doing battle with temptation and against... uh, against battling against the evil one. And you, with gutsy faith, believing God's Word, throw back at the devil words from like that hymn that we sing um, before the throne of God above. I think it's the second stanza. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and I see Him there who made an end to all my sin. When we fight temptation like that, boldly, confidently, with Romans 8 type confidence, God the Father is not sitting up in heaven thinking, you need to tone it back a few notches in terms of your banking that soundly on the foundation, the unshakable foundation of my love for you. Rather, the Father is saying, yes, 
I am honored and glorified by that because my child, whom I love, is embracing and owning with full confidence the unshakable foundation of my love for him shown in the fact that I gave my son for him. That's why we try to emphasize often at the Lord's table that this is not a table for the sinless. This table preaches the same exact Gospel the Word of God preaches. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's not like you're saved and become a Christian by grace and then all of a sudden the table is for those who have graduated from grace. This table is the visible display of the Father's love for you. And it dishonors the Father when we refuse to come to the table because we are a sinner. That's who it's designed for. It's designed for people like us who sin tragically against divine love and who need to be reassured that God loves us still. Not coming to the table because you're a sinner is like saying, I'm too sick to take medicine to get better. It is God's appointed means of grace for applying the Gospel to our hearts and our souls. Humility takes God at His Word. And at the table, God says to us, I know your struggles better than you do. I know your sins. I know your shortcomings. I know that you are still ungodly. Now come and remember that my Son died and rose again for your ungodliness and come and remember my everlasting love. And I'm well aware as a preacher of the Gospel that they're very well might be present the disobedient who will hear that scandalous free grace and will use it as an excuse to be licentious and to abuse the grace of God and to sin so that grace may abound. And honestly, as a preacher of the Gospel, it is better to run the risk of sinners abusing the grace of God than it is to withhold from the saints the grace that they need to hear about. That brings us to the second thing. Second doctrine slash application. And this is focused more towards the unbeliever. And please listen to me very carefully. To reject the Gospel is to sin against God's greatest display of love. To reject the Gospel is to sin against God's greatest display of love. Listen to Hebrews 10, 28, and 29 where the author is contrasting Moses' covenant and Christ's covenant and the penalties that come with each for refusing them. He writes, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That was the punishment of breaking the old covenant. Death. Physical death. And the author says this in verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will He be thought worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? My friend, if you're here and you're not trusting Christ, with great love comes great responsibility. There will be worse punishment for the one who rejects the Gospel and the New Covenant than for anyone else who has ever rejected any other covenant God has made with man. It is sin to break any covenant that God has made. But it is the greatest sin to reject the Son of His love. 
And I want you, unbeliever, to be aware of what you are presently doing in rejecting the Gospel. Yes, it's a command of God to believe and be saved. But more than that, it is the very blood of His Son that you are trampling underfoot and and acting as though it is worthless. And my friend, it is very serious business. And the Bible is not quiet about the very serious penalty that will come to those who constantly receive God's good gifts but refuse to respond in faith and repentance. Romans 2, verse 4 and 5, Paul writes to his audience, do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the love of God is intended to lead you, or the goodness of God is intended to lead you to repentance. What Paul is saying to this person is that every good gift God gives to anyone, whether it be children or marriage or life and breath and everything and sunshine and fruitful seasons, Paul is saying those things are meant to cause the sinner to sit up and realize what a wretched sinner I am, how gracious and good God has been towards me, and I ought to respond with thankfulness and gratitude by repenting and trusting His Son. But Paul goes on in verse 5 and he says, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, the one who receives constantly the mercies of God and refuses to turn to God in repentance and faith will store up for themselves more wrath than if they had never received those good things in the first place. And if you think about it, if that's true of things like sunshine and rain and harvest, how much more true is it of the one who continually rejects the free offer of Christ in the Gospel? Hebrews 10.26 For if we sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. My friend, listen to me. I'm going to speak plainly with you. You are playing with a fire that you do not understand how it will burn you and consume you. And I mean this. If you are going to perish and go to hell, the single worst place you can do it from is from sitting in a pew in a faithful Bible-believing church in which Christ was made plain to you. Better to go to hell from somewhere that has never heard the name of Christ published Because your accountability to the truth is heightened. And yes, there are levels of torment in hell. Jesus says to the cities that He performed signs in and then they rejected Him. He says on the day of judgment, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you because you saw the light of God's Son. The greatest light and you chose to snuff it out. 
Let me speak frankly to you as an unbeliever. You cannot say after this morning, I didn't know. Some of you have been coming for weeks and months. It's too late to claim ignorance. You know about Christ. You know about the Father's love and the Son's love for sinners. And now you're accountable to that knowledge. It's one of the reasons Paul says to the Corinthians, and I feel this as a preacher of the Gospel, he exclaims, who is sufficient for these things? Because he said in our preaching, I know that we are a savor of life unto life for some who are being saved, but that same preaching is a savor of death unto death for those who are perishing. It's one of the sobering things about being a preacher of the Gospel. We hold out life knowing that it will be life to some, but that it will also be an increasing death and condemnation to others. But it is my job as a preacher, you cannot undo what you now know, and it is my job to lead you in the way you must go. And so, sinner, turn to the Son before it is too late. I pray that your heart would sink in your chest and that you would tremble at the fearful prospect of what it will be to perish under the wrath of the infinitely holy God whose love you have spurned. That you would tremble to die in the state that you are presently in being separated from God because you don't know Christ. Because those tremblings May they be the beginnings of a work of God's grace in your heart to bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ. Right? We sing in amazing grace, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear relieved. Jesus told a parable in Luke 16 about a rich man who had everything in this world and he dies and he goes to hell. And he is in such torment that he pleads from hell with heaven. He pleads with heaven that someone might be sent back to his brothers so that they might not go to this horrible place. And Jesus' reply to them, to him, is if they don't believe the scriptures, they won't believe even if someone returns to them from the dead. My friend, there are millions right now in hell who reasoned the same exact way you are now currently reasoning. Who told themselves hell is not real. All this stuff is just made up. Or I'll turn to the Lord before I die. And right now, even though they don't want God, rest assured, every fiber in their being wants out of hell. And if they could tell you that, And if you could hear them, they would warn even their worst enemy, do not come here. My friend, you cannot hear their cries, but you can hear the cry of the Scriptures telling you in the way in which you must go. Whoever believes on the Son will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Look to the sun, lest you perish. 
honor the Father's gift of love by embracing with empty and thankful hands the gift of eternal life through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you die? Why would you perish when life is laid out before you? Sinner, come to Christ and close with Christ by faith. Throwing away your hope of your own righteousness to present you before God. Your righteousness will get you cast into hell. What you think is righteousness is filthy rags and it's dirty before God. But He's given you His Son who is pure and holy. Who right now offers you to exchange robes so that He takes your sins, your sin-stained garments, and He gives to you His perfectly, brilliantly white garments of righteousness. Do not refuse Him who speaks to you from heaven. Trust His Son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, be gracious, we pray to sinners. You so love the world that You gave Your only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We pray for every soul in this room to look to Christ by faith. Whether for the first time or for the ten thousandth time, that we would afresh remember that our righteousness is in heaven, that it cannot change, that it cannot get worse and it cannot get better because our righteousness is not in us, but is the righteousness of God from Christ. Father, write Your Word upon our hearts. We pray that we would be more and more assured of Your love for us. Father, help us to fight against temptation and the evil one with the truth of Your Word that if You did not spare Your own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will You not with Him freely give us all things? Father, forgive us for doubting Your love when we experience hard providences. Forgive us for at times practically acting as though Christ is not the greatest demonstration of love You could have given. Father, we pray that we would hold things loosely in this world, that we would be able to welcome and embrace hardship, remembering that the wounds of Christ speak an infinitely better word of Your love than even kind providences. Father, work in the hearts of the unregenerate. Give them the birth from above. Awaken them to their spiritual need. Awaken them with fear to where their sins will lead them in eternity if not repented of and given to Christ. And then, Lord, we pray, bring not only conviction of sin, but cause them to close with Christ in the Gospel. To have the beautiful assurance of God's favor and love given to them. Father, bless our Lord's Day. Bless us as we come to the Lord's table. Minister to our hearts and our souls, we ask. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.